Amen. So what I'm going to do with us is walk us through a historical event in this account and then kind of pick up where we were working over the last couple, two or three weeks around the idea of prophecy, which is the six of nine gifts that Paul talks about, 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of prophecy. And we've already looked at it on a classical level. We've made sure that we understood it as being the the gift or modality of proclamation. It means to declare, set forth divine truth. It also means to foretell, and sometimes it means to rear tale. And what I mean by that, prophecy is not bound merely about prognostications or being able to tell the future, as some people would want it. Sometimes prophecy is about reminding us of the past. In fact, if Revelation chapter 19.10 is true, And you should know that one by heart by now, at least part B, the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. And when people fail to understand that, what they fail to understand is when you talk about Jesus, you're talking about past, present and future. So when we're talking prophecy, we are not simply talking about being able to tell people what tomorrow is going to be about. Actually, when we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about the work of the Spirit of God in taking the past to show us the present and to prepare us for the future, right? That is what a good teacher does. And prophetically, that's the role of the church in the world to get God's history right in our articulation of it, in our declaration of it, in our exposition of it scripturally so that the world can know where it came from and, uh, and what God demands and therefore what God is doing and will do. We don't get that right. We are actually not the voice of God. So on a prophetic level, it's extremely important that you and I know the, uh, we talked about this before, the content of prophecy is the word of God. The content of prophecy is the word of God. The origin of prophecy is what? Who knows? Heaven, right? Forever, O Lord, your word is what? Settled, declared, established, unmoved, unargued in heaven. And it comes down on a functional level as revelation. God reveals himself to us by the prophets and the content of that revelation is the word of the living God. This is what Peter tells us. And now we're kind of getting into the impact of prophecy. And I shared a little bit of that as we are moving forward to get ready to deal with glossolalia, our tongues, the gifts of languages in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, And the idea of prophecy is that you and I are to be instructed, you and I are to be corrected, admonished, you and I are to be edified and built up. When prophecy is done right, building up takes place. Building up does not mean making you feel good. Like a lot of times the only way a person can be built up is when they are first torn down. And the reason that's the case is because we are wrong often at the premise of things. And if God loves us, he'll correct us. And so often what people don't particularly care about the spirit of prophecy is that the spirit of prophecy is understood in John chapter 16, verse eight. And and that would be, and you should know these by heart, when the spirit of truth has come, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. So the work of the spirit of God is to convince us of what? Sin. Right. Which none of us really likes to hear about because sin is missing the mark. That's what sin is. Sin uh, in the metaphor. 
metaphorical analogy of the uh, Greek language, hamartia, means to shoot an arrow and miss the bullseye. To shoot an arrow and miss the bullseye. And it's really speaking to the fact that your bow is crooked. Your bow is crooked. Your arrow is crooked. When you shoot it, it misses the mark. And that's what we are by nature, people who what? Miss the mark. Right. We miss the mark. And, and so God has to correct us. He has to straighten out our arrow. So we actually hit the target and that requires grace. And so you and I often by God's fatherly love are corrected around our views. And if we are, then we are his children. That's what the Bible says. All whom the Lord loves, he chastens, corrects, admonishes. And when you get used to that as a fundamental requisite for truth, you can overcome humiliation um, when you are able to receive humility. This is kind of good for you to capture now because one of the problems with American Christians are we're too proud. And I can let you know that for a fact, been one for a long time. Uh, We don't really do well with being corrected because we misconstrue humility with humiliation. And humiliation is different than humility, right? So when God says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, it doesn't mean that God humiliates you. I've told you that before. Haven't I told you that before? But why then would it be so hard to experience the process of being humbled? Is because in our minds, we misconstrue the process of being humbled with the idea of being humiliated. Does that make sense? And so in our head, we will be thinking it's wrong what I'm going through. It's wrong what you are making me deal with. It's wrong the way you are correcting me. Often our kids will protest all over the place about the way in which we might correct them. But frequently the way in which we correct them is the only way if we're doing it with care and love, right? Because we have an outcome we're looking for. So it is with God. And often this is why you and I go through a lot of trouble. We go through a lot. Of, I'm going to walk through a few people and then we'll get into our text a little bit. <clears throat> did, did God use David? Yeah. Did, did he use him mightily? Yeah. All right. Did David go through a lot of trouble? Yes. Did God constantly have to correct his servant? Yes. Like if you really look at the biblical models of people who have been productive for the cause of Christ, they really often have suffered. That inferred in that is that God really often uses people who are willing to be molded and shaped into his will and his purpose. And a lot of that is breaking us from bad patterns, breaking us from habits and breaking us from a lot of assumptions. All right. So I'm going to go into a text that is really not going to deal with content. It's going to deal with form because this is what I want to remember the question I raised on Tuesday. This is what I want to deal with tonight. I want to deal with the question of what does it look like? It's going to have kind of like four requisite questions to it. What does it look like for a believer to be uh, prophetically centered where the spirit of prophecy is operating in his or her life fairly consistently? And then I raise the question, what does that look like in a home? What would a home look like where the husband and the wife are really operating out of a consistent and a broadly sort of biblically based and spirit aided uh, prophetic characteristic? That's what we were talking about last time. The community characteristics, 
the characteristics of a community that is operating out of the gift of prophecy. You guys remember that, right? And so I want to now soften the idea of prophecy because I need to snatch it away from how the church has hijacked it and turned it into a caricature. Haven't I talked about that? Because you have to. There's so much about the church that we have bought and have tried to mimic that doesn't necessarily square with the word of God. So but this is really important because the question that I'm raising is if what's coming out of your mouth 80 to 90 percent of the time is it really squaring with biblical truth and therefore not as, is not functioning at a prophetic level, what, what kind of atmosphere must that be? Does that make some sense? And we talked about it. What if a home has become accustomed to not having the spirit of prophecy uh, dominate its sound, dominate its atmosphere, dominate its characteristic. You guys can kind of see where that's going, right? And that's what I want to unpack, because if we learn about, you know, prophecy or the gift of prophecy, the gift of declaring God's word, proclaiming, teaching, witnessing, I've already, ta- I've already shown you in Acts 2, 17 and 18, you got to pull that up, got to keep up with me. Um, I've already shown you that really in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy is not exclusive to the classical category of the pulpit. Didn't I share that with you? Yeah. Right. So I, w- I want that to come home a little bit more. I want, I want you to know that while there is a purpose and design for the formal teaching and proclamation of God's word, which is what, what we do here, what I do, there is an expectation since we are in the New Testament for every believer, man, woman, and child who are endowed with God's spirit to be prophetically inclined, to have the fundamental calling of sharing the word of God. That makes sense, right? So look at it again, verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last day, said God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your what? Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision and your old men shall dream dreams. It does not limit the age. It does not say until you're 35, you don't get to exercise that gift. And really what that meant was that the spirit of God would invade homes at a total level so that men, women, and children would be partakers of the divine nature and be able to engage, therefore, in this beautiful thing called the prophetic word, being able to share God's word at the simple and at the profound level. And my question was, what does that look like when you have a family with a husband and wife and children that are so centered in Christ and grounded in his word? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, right? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, right? In psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. We already have learned that one of the modalities of the prophetic word is in singing, right? So when we sing hymns and songs, the content should be the word of God. It should have a, have a prophetic component to it, not just a beautiful melody or aesthetic sound, but a prophetic uh, prophetic component to it. This is what I'm trying to get at. Maybe for those of you who will be moving into marriage, moving into family, you can be praying for what would that look like? So I want to deal with the presence of it. I want to deal with the absence of it. I want to deal with the impact of it. Okay. When we get into Q and A, 
But right now, I want to deal with the form of it again. One more form. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 19. And what do we mean by form? I want to deal with its expression, what it looks like. What, what it looks like. Because what I shared with you a couple of weeks ago up till recently is that most of the time when you hear about prophecy or it demonstrated like in the Old Testament, very seldom is the content of the prophecy made known. Remember Numbers 11, verse 25, where Moses has been instructed by God that he will take of the spirit that was upon Moses and put it upon 70 elders. And they began to prophesy and did not cease. Do you guys remember that? So you may be looking at the verse, but all you're getting there is a form. You're not getting content. You don't have data and information by which you can say, this is what they said. Right now, the only thing you're getting, and there's a reason for it, is you're getting a form and expression. See what I'm getting at? All right. So you're getting ready to look at another one here because this here is something that is called in the Hebrew language, nabi, naba. It has to do with flow. It has to do with the nature of the spirit of God working prophetically in a flow. Heaven opens up. The word comes down, it enters into the heart, and it comes out of the mouth. Did that make some sense? Heaven opens up, the word comes down, it enters into the heart, and out of the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. So that's John seven thirty seven. You know this, right? You know this. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me, for out of his belly shall what? Flow. And the implication there has to do with the, the, um, the capacity for the word of God to fill you up with God's advice, with God's counsel, with God's truth, with God's will, with God's decree, and fill you up in such a way, but that you cannot but open your mouth and speak. Does that make some sense? Now, and so what you're getting ready to get in the account here is a, an example of flow. I want you to keep that in mind, okay? It's an example of flow. It's simply how the... Old Testament and the new demonstrates the spirit doing something for you that you can't do for yourself. This is important to get. This is important to get because, you know, there are people who can pretend that they're being filled with the spirit. You know, every the devil can almost mimic anything that God has given as an original item. Okay, so we're going to be dealing with that just a tad. But the, the the emphasis here is to let you know that Prophecy is not something that is just conjured up within yourself simply because you might be intellectually competent or you might have the academic capacity for acquiring a knowledge of God's word and therefore just kind of be able to rat it off like, you know, a dictatorial entity. The idea of the prophetic word or the spirit of prophecy or the gift of prophecy is the idea of a relationship with the entity, the person, with heaven, where heaven opens up and pours into you the spirit of God at the level of revelation. Remember, illumination of God's word, right? The illumination of God's word. So now you are informed enough to open your mouth in submission to God and allow that truth to be communicated to others. All right, I want you to see the account. Okay, this is going to be account again of God's sovereignty in using a man ultimately who is not saved 
which again teaches you and I that God is sovereign. He can use whomever he wills, right? It also infers this just up front, to upload it up front. Just because you hear somebody or see somebody and they appear to have flow because we're often influenced by expression and form. You, many of us, particularly if you're given to emotionalism, you like form, you like flow, you like noise or maybe volume, you like energy, but none of that necessarily constitutes an allegiance between the instrument that is doing that and the content coming through it. Did that make some sense? Right, but it's going to be important for you and I to kind of see that what God is actually doing when he says, but I will pour out my spirit is simply saying that I will actually give men and women the capacity from a place in which they can't actually derive it themselves. Heaven will invade the life and bring them into a kind of compliance and submission through filling that qualifies them to share God's word authentically and genuinely with an impact. That makes sense, right? All right, now watch this one. This is about King David and who? King Saul. All right, and just for those of you who, who like framing narratives, these are the two kings, the two first kings of Israel. One is God's man, the other one is not. All right, and so that tension is all through the Bible, right? The tension of Christ and the Antichrist is important to get. And the Antichrist is always trying to kill the Christ. I need you to get that model. This is the danger. If, if you and I don't understand how the enemy works, you and I will always be in danger of being hoodwinked by him. He always is out to silence the son of the living God. This is how you know you're on the wrong team. When you're on the team that wants to silence Christ, you're on the wrong team. So just listen to the narrative and we'll, we'll work our three through. And so Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants, and they, that they should do what? Kill David. There you go. If that's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? If that's not the pattern of the church, if that's not Cain and Abel, right? If that's not Jacob and Esau, what else is that, right? These are the two brothers. And John said in 1 John chapter 3, and Cain was of that wicked one, the devil, Right? And the devil comes not but to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. So whenever you are hearing any kind of ideology, any kind of assertions, any kind of doctrine, any kind of teaching that is seeking to kill the Christ, you're dealing with an antichrist system. You need to be able to pick that up really quick because the enemy can come in a, as an angel of light and really deceive you into thinking you're on the right team. Because you're not aware that his main objective is to diminish the person and work of Christ because liberty only comes through Jesus. Right. So now watch this battle. This is interesting. Verse two goes on. We're going to 25 verses and I'm going to try to walk all the way through it. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So now what is Jonathan? He's a kind of in a twix, is he not? His daddy is a devil and his best friend is the servant of the living God. Right. All right. So now notice what he says. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to yourself until in the morning and abide in a secret place and hide yourself. Let's keep going. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field wherewith you are and will commune with my father there. And uh, oh, you know what? I want to go to verse 10. That's way too early. 
I mean, it's really good. That's a, it's the plot that's being set up, but I want to start at verse 10. Verse 10, and Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away. Uh, yep, he slipped away. This here is a, uh, a meal they were having together, and he smote the javelin in the wall. David fled and escaped that night. Let's keep going. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you save not your life tonight, tomorrow you shall be slain. This is the one time that his wife did him some good. She gave him the text. She gave him the email. She let him know uh, you don't want to stay here tonight. And so David, uh, David escapes. Verse um, verse 12. So Michael let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered him with uh, covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's what? All right. See, I could stop right there and do a parenthetical around the issue of um, uh, what we call um, um, situational ethics. Right. Because often you'll be challenged with, is there ever a time in your life? That you should say less than the truth. In order for someone to survive something that would be catastrophic if you actually told the truth. So I, I do this frequently because what I notice with Christians is we'll lie about our ethical standard because we're not thinking it through. First of all, whenever something like that is raised up, you want to be really slow to answer. Don't be too quick, because like say if you said yes, like somebody just said yes, and you haven't really examined all of the plausible scenarios that might open up, you don't know whether or not a certain scenario might have you to recant on what you just said. Did you hear what I just stated? That's why you want to just be slow. Just listen to it. Think it through. Here's the question we're raising. Are there scenarios in our life where the lesser of two evils would amount to saying something that is not quite true in order to make sure that life is preserved. This is standard in ethics. This is standard in logic, right? And if a person says, it's never good to lie any time, that, that's the inference right there. It's never good to lie any time. Okay, right. In a situation like this, which one would have been better for Michael to have told David's uh, told her father's servants exactly where David was and let David get killed? Would it have been better? Right? Now, that would be a challenge for some because here's the issue. If, if you have no skin in the game, you might temporarily buy into that higher ethic. It is not good to lie at any time for any reason. Right? And so now you're walking in a self-righteousness until it's your child. This is why you have to be very careful of self-righteousness. See what I'm getting at? Right. Because like for me, it wouldn't even be a hesitation. He went that way. If that was my son or somebody I loved and then I'd have to be willing to take the hit to have protected my son. My argument would be right. Um, our sister Rahab from Jericho. She's in the hall of faith as having loved God enough to hide the spies and when you look at the language there, she was in a conundrum where she had to say she didn't know which way they went. Y'all got that? Yeah. Right. One is not advocating lying. 
One is actually advocating loving something higher than a system that would bring harm to somebody else. Does that make some sense? Right. And if one were really struggling through this, this is how you understand the struggle. Just to put it out there, because I like for us to think things through. The reason why you and I would not be able to always tell the truth is because we don't have all power to shape the outcome. If you could shape the outcome of any event, you could always tell the truth. Did I make some sense right there? Oh, yeah. like, like, if you were sovereign, like God, then you can always tell the truth. Because if you told the truth and you knew that the enemy now knows where your people are, you just thwart the enemy. But when it comes to you and me, we're very limited creatures, are we not? We're limited in our knowledge. We're limited in our capacity. We're limited on so many levels. And so because you and I are limited, you and I are liars. Told you that's going to hurt, but it's true. Right. So, and now, now watch this. Can I, can I just talk about this for a minute just to help a few people stop lying about the fact that they lie? Because you do. Um, and you won't even know you're lying because you're in a twix and because you have lack of wisdom, you do something in the moment that puts you in conflict. Does it put you in conflict? Right. But if you if you address the conflict with this in view, that the outcome that is positive is greater than that momentary negative for what I had to say, then I can endure not being able to hold a greater level of integrity, which means in this moment for me to be a liar simply means I don't have all power. I don't have all knowledge. I can't control the events. What I do know that if I can delay someone suffering negative consequences, For me, just simply saying, I don't know, I'd rather suffer that than to see someone harmed. Did that make some sense? Very important for you to work that through. Otherwise, if you hold to that previous standard, I don't ever lie at any time, then you and the Bible are in a contradiction, right? Because all men are what? All right. So look at verse 15. Let's work this through. I just thought I'd share that with you. And Saul sent messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the messengers would come in, behold, there was an image in the bed. This is what Micah had done, set up. It appeared like David was under the cover of sleep. Have have your kids ever did that and then snuck out the window and and, and bailed out on you? Have you have you ever done something of that nature? And so this one here is another scenario. I shouldn't even deal with it. But these are the kind of challenges you and I might have where Micah also is engaging in a falsehood. She's creating a scenario that makes it look like David is here, right? To give David time to get away, right? It can be used for good or used for bad. It would be equivalent to you simply stalling someone in conversation long enough for that other party to get away. Did that make some sense? All right, then I'll ask you the other question. Did Michael do it? Because she loved David. You can, don't rush, don't rush. Just think it through, okay? Love covers a multitude of sin. Love worketh no evil to its neighbor, right? So we're, we're talking about now that nature and ethic of love, are we not? So just walk that through, okay? And remember, there are multiple, there are multiple levels to love, right? You can love at a certain level and at another level you, you don't love. Did that make some sense? 
you can love your enemy at that level, right? And not have a direct, passionate, emotional sort of phileo love for them. You can have, there can be somebody you don't even actually personally like, but you can love them in the agape sense of making sure they're not harmed as a consequence of you giving them up. Did that come home? All right. So good. I'm glad you came out on Friday. We want to learn, don't we? Right. We, we just want to learn. We don't we want to learn because we don't want to be shallow and ignorant Christians. There are going to be naughty situations in O-T-T-Y-K-N-O-T-T-Y, naughty situations in your life that are hard to unravel. And sometimes you're going to be stuck as the culprit helping someone out. And then you got to suffer the consequences but you're glad to suffer them because you helped somebody. Amen. All right. I'm building an argument for something. All right, let me keep going. Um, verse 17. I want to walk this through. This is a long route. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me so and sent away my enemy that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said unto me, let me go. Why should I kill thee? Okay. That's a good argument, right? She's talking to her daddy. Uh, David didn't say that, by the way. She's just, she's just, she's just building on the narrative, okay? Uh, verse 18, let's keep going. So David fled and escaped, came to Samuel to Ramah. Ramah is a certain place in Palestine or Israel to Samuel. Samuel is the last of the um, uh, judges and the first of the prophets and told him all that Saul had done to him. Now, remember Samuel left off with, King Saul, when King Saul wouldn't kill Agag. And King Saul tried to hold on to Samuel and he tore his garment as Samuel was leaving. And Samuel said, the spirit of God has taken the kingdom of God from you and has given it to another more fitting. And so King Saul never saw Samuel again until this event. Does that make some sense? And it meant that King Saul did not have the prophetic office supporting this king while he was executing his role as king of Israel. Did that make some sense? Because we can go into that. Remember, Saul is a prophet. uh, Samuel's a prophet, is he not? So he's he's bearing the spirit of prophecy in him. He's separating from King Saul. Now we can see why King Saul did all kind of crazy stuff because he did not have the spirit of prophecy. He was not truly a child of God. So he's going to he's going to um, he's going to go to war when he shouldn't. He's going to kill sacrifices when he shouldn't. He's going to save people alive when he shouldn't. He's going to go to the witch of indoor when he shouldn't. All because he's walking in the flesh. And Samuel's not going to have anything to do with him. Samuel is not going to cover him. Samuel is going to be with who? David. So David and Samuel meet. But here comes Saul, and Saul is the administrative judge with all the power. He has the complete executive office to kill this man. So he's coming with all the power of the secular sword, is he not? Well, whenever the secular system comes after the sacred righteous, what can we expect? God to protect So I'll say that again to help you understand where we are in our present time for people who know that our Bible means something now. When the secular systems rise up against the sacred people of God because of their prophetic calling, God has to intervene to protect them, 
because they don't get to fight the secular power with the same sword the secular power uses. I'm going to draw that out again and keep going because my my brothers and sisters in America don't get it. You don't get to live by the sword. You don't get to kill by the sword. Right. Your sword is a different sword and your battle is a different battle. Did that make some sense? But see, it takes faith to actually walk in that because you're vulnerable to the secular system. You're vulnerable to the devil persecuting your flesh, putting you in jail. Right. Or killing you. Right. Now you got to wait on God. Right. Here it is. So David fled and escaped, came to Samuel to Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naoth. Verse 19. This is going to be quite interesting here. And I just want you to see it for the form. And it was told Saul, saying, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying. Now, here we go. We have now the form of the prophecy. Y'all got that? We're lifting that up because I want you to see they are what? Prophesying. There's flow taking place. There's flow. What do we not have? Content. There's nothing being told about what they are saying because that's not the point. The point is wherever you meet men who are engaged with God at the level of commitment, flow will be there. Did that make some sense? All right. It's important to get that. Uh, And and we can say in the New Testament, certainly women, too. Now, in the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them. So we have a picture of a bunch of prophets prophesying and Samuel leading them in that exhibition of prophecy. Makes sense to me. God loved him some Samuel. Remember, Samuel is a Christ type. His mother was barren. She didn't have any children and she fought the devil like I don't know what to go from barrenness to being blessed with a child whom she gave to the Lord because God had given her a son. Samuel means the one that hears God. Shema El. Shema El. To hear from God. Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Shema El. Samuel is the one who hears from God. Or we can turn it around. The one whom God hears. Okay. I love that truth too. So every one of us are really a Shema El if you are a child of God. Okay. Shema El. You are one who hears God and you are one for whom God hears you. Actually, because that's the way it goes. You and I won't talk to God until God talks to us first. Did that come home? So when God speaks to us, we speak back. And, and this is how you and I know we have a connection with God. It goes on to say the spirit of God was upon the messengers. Uh, I'm sorry. And Samuel standing as appointed over them. Then the spirit of God was upon the messengers of who? And they also what? So what is happening here is, is what is happening here? Is Saul's servants now being turned from bad guys to good guys? No. Saul's servants are now being controlled by the spirit of God so that they cannot hurt God's servant. Did that make some sense? Right. It's important to get this was the distinction, the category distinction that we made a couple weeks ago. The difference between the spirit of God and regeneration and the spirit of God and external office function in terms of its function officially. The spirit of God can use anybody. We just saw this with the donkey, didn't we? That's a grand example, right? God can use a donkey 
to speak. And we know that donkey is not born again. We know he's not saved, but God used him. And the point was, is that God can use any fool, any natural brute beast, anytime God wants to, to stop that fool from doing something foolish and do something good, even though it's not in that fool's heart to do it. Yeah, you ought to be excited about that. And the reason why is because there'll be situations in which a fool wants to hurt you in court, in litigation, in scenarios around work and jobs. Lord, put a word in his mouth. Right. Put a word in his mouth so he can say the right thing. Is God sovereign? Can he do that? Trying to trying to get you to understand that. Like, think this through. If we didn't believe that God was sovereign, we wouldn't be able to pray like that, would we? And then we would be thinking that the enemy, the adversary, those hasatans or those um, those diabolicists, those devils would be free to say whatever they wanted to against us. And at no time could we tell God or ask God or implore God to shut the enemy's mouth. But because we know that every tongue is from the Lord. Every ear is from the Lord. Who made the dumb? Who made the deaf? Who made the mind? Who made the mouth? Who made the lips? God did. And if God made the lips, the mind, the mouth, cannot God control the tongue of our adversary? Right. See, now that's a word that you can hold on to going into the future. That's a word you can hold on to because the enemy loves to actually fight his people with weapons in the flesh. And the people of God want to have the weapons of spiritual warfare to mitigate the weapons in the flesh. All right, let me keep going just to work this through. So notice what it says in verse 21. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they what? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now, um, I was talking on Tuesday on my Monday program about the idea of uh, pattern recognition systems, right? You guys know what a pattern recognition system is. And particularly if you guys are in technology, if you are in the computer science, you know what a pattern is. And we're using that in AI like big time now. Y'all do know that, right? Facial pattern recognition systems, right? Being able to see who you are, individuate 8 billion people on the planet so they can identify you. That is equivalent to the mark of the beast when it's all done. Y'all know that. Uh, recognizing patterns is what believers are called to do in the scripture. Is this account here a pattern of other things in the scripture? Just raise your hand if you know. All right. See, so some of you know that this is a pattern. That means you can find something like this happening somewhere else in the scripture as a model. It won't be perfectly the same. It'll be augmented. I'll give you one. This will be Elisha the prophet who is now being uh, inquired by the king and the king sends servants. And those servants say, are you the man of God? And what the text says is fire from heaven came down and killed them. And then the king sent 50 more and the same thing happened. Do you guys remember that? Second Kings chapter one. And then the king sent a third group out of the mouth of what? Two or three witnesses. And that third group got the message (laughs) and bowed the knee to Elisha and didn't die. Say, what's the correlation? The pouring out of the spirit of God in prophecy is really equivalent to fire coming down from heaven. 
as we already learned in Acts chapter 2. It's an affirmation of the one true and living God because our God is a what? Consuming fire. You guys got that? Right. In other words, the accounts that I'm sharing with you, if you're lost right now, is really about God's sovereignty. Like God is sovereign in all this that's going on. Like, okay, so I want to just rub you a little bit before we go a little bit further. So what if you were what if you were David in this scenario? And and this is why I love me some David. And and I can tell you, you, you your pastor is one of these dudes that actually I love the underdog. So that's a vulnerability for me. Like even in the world, if 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 you got strong men going after weak men, my natural inclination is to want to be with weak, the, the weaker person because I grew up in disadvantaged situations. I wasn't privileged. So I know what it's like when power likes to dominate someone that's weaker. Does that make some sense? And, and that can that they can just really do do have their way with you until you're strong enough to overcome it. Right. And of course, this is the savior motif in the scriptures, is it not? God's people are oppressed. God has to come in because they don't have the ability to save themselves. And then God rescues us. Right. I was thinking about this. I'm getting ready to deal with another part. I just want to uh, sprinkle your thoughts about this. This is why God loved Moses. Did you remember Moses was, you know, being groomed as a Manchurian candidate, Manchurian candidate for Egypt? Was he not? Everybody knows that. And, you know, I'm I'm talking theologically because he was educated at the highest levels of Egyptology, mathematics and science. He really was. And one day he's perusing out in the byways and he sees an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. You guys remember that? Now, if Moses was a lot of like a lot of people today, I'm just going to mind my own business. I don't care about him being hurt because if I get involved in that, that's going to make my life harder. I mean, if I'm, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm about to live large in a minute. I'm about to matriculate up and all I need to do is kind of turn a blind eye. I got the blessings of the king. Why should I worry about this lesser brother? Did that make some sense? See, so a lot of that happens even today because at the structural level of politics and even religion, we're we're dealing with this kind of struggle. Are we not? A scenario comes where you're looking at a conflict. And you're having to ask yourself, should I get in that conflict? If I do, however, I'm getting ready to mess up my own life It's going to get messy. And I might lose my blessing. So I'm working for a company and they're pouring down upon people unjust laws. Hint, hint. And then all of a sudden you shut your mouth because you don't want to lose your job. I know I'm hurting some people, but this is also what I mean by the word of God being very relevant to where we are today. And you want to make sure when the pendulum of political narratives are swinging, that you're on the right side of that conflict narrative. Did that come home? You want to make sure you're on the right side of that conflict narrative because the pendulum swings on purpose to put you at cross purposes with God. And get you and and it sets you up to actually work for the enemy. That makes some sense, right? You look up one day and policy is laid down. And now all of a sudden you got to actually serve the devil and not serve God. And now you got to struggle with who am I? And what am I called to do, right? 
I'm making some sense, right? Because I'm setting you up for the next stuff that's coming to us again. And many of us are going to get trapped in that same kind of conflict paradigm, that conflict landscape narrative. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, am I going to make the same mistake or am I going to do better at trusting God and telling the truth? See what I'm getting at? See, okay. so and I'm glad you're here. Please listen. God will take you through a trial where he will let you escape the trial but you actually failed the trial. Raise your hand. I just need a few people. Burn some calories. You can get some chocolate cake tonight. All right. He'll take you through some trials and you failed the trial, but he was still good to you. He kept you, guarded you, brought you out, washed, holds you down because you're stinking. Right. And he's telling you, OK, you know, you're forgiven. Because you said, Lord, you know, I, I, I messed up. I should have did the right thing. I failed. I didn't think it through. You know, all of our discombobulations. Right. And God's good. Is he not? Yeah. Right. He'll just tell you, all right, you know, you need to now work on that because another one's coming. Yeah. And when that, that other one comes, let's see if we can do a better job this time. Right. Remember, the Lord tries the hearts of the righteous. You and I are going to go through trials. We don't get to get away with trials. The issue is, can I do a better job next time? Can I get informed so that I'm prepared the next time to pivot and make sure I stay in my lane and make sure I am aware of who I am and whose I am? So then when I respond, I respond from the position of being a child of the king and not a slave of the system. All right, I'm still speaking in code. I'm still speaking in code. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they prophesied also. Verse 22. Then when he also to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seca, and he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they be at Naoth in Ramah. And he went thither to Naoth in Ramah and the spirit of God was upon him also. Now, what does Saul think was going to happen just because he went down? That he had such invested authority and power and sovereignty that he was just going to walk through all of that power and take David. He's foolish, isn't he? So like this happened three times. A wall of protection was put up for David three times. Soldiers were brought into captivity by God three times. What does King Saul think he's going to do? See what I'm getting at? Right. This is the reason why what I love going back to the uh, Moses account, just in case you wonder why I shifted. I didn't. With the Moses account, Moses added up the cost. He stood there, he says, should I simply finish my education and get my degree so I can get paid $350,000 a year by being a stooge for the government? Or should I actually do the right thing like a good Samaritan and deliver my brother from this wicked tyranny, no matter what the cost would be? See what I'm getting at? No matter what the cost. He had no idea what the cost would be. He, had, he didn't know what the cost would be. And the next thing you know, Moses now is in a long route of a history of redemption where he's now going to be the head of the people of God. All by one choice where he was willing to lay down his life for his friend. 
for greater love hath no man than that he lay down his life for his friend. You guys got that? Moses had no idea how high that decision was going to exalt him. So sometimes you and I don't know what the outcome is at the beginning, but trusting God, no matter how deep the valley goes, the mountaintop is worth it, is it not? All right, so it's, it's, it's important for you to know. And I would ask you, was the spirit of God working in Moses when he chose to deliver his brother from that Egyptian, even though it would set him at odds with the whole nation? Yes. Of course. Of course. Here it is. So the spirit of God, can you go back to verse 23? Because I wasn't full with it. So the spirit of God came upon Saul also, and he went on. I want you to ca- catch this and prophesied. Until he came to Naoth and Ramah. First thing I want you to capture with this is the spirit of prophecy is on him, right? Now I want, to, I want you to capture that he cannot stop prophesying. He's speaking as he's going. Did y'all get that? He's headed towards David, but he's captured by the spirit of God. And now his His mind now is controlled by the spirit of God. So what's coming out of his mouth is actually antithetical to his motive. Am I making some sense? So what is God doing to him as he did to his three other crew of men? He's showing them and King Saul that he's the true and the living God, that he's the sovereign Lord that he controls the kings, that he controls men, that he controls. Remember what I quoted in uh, Proverbs 19, 21. There are many devices in the heart of a man, but the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Do you guys remember that? Talking about parallel contrast, meaning you and I. Oh, here's another one. It's Genesis 50, verse 20, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Right. All of these are the kinds of accounts where when we know God, we can trust him to turn a thing around beyond our capacity because he's engaging now in the supernatural. Is this not called the supernatural? It is right. It's very much supernatural. And so here it is. And he went thither to Naoth and Ramah. And this this part was amazing to me. And uh, spirit of God was upon him. He prophesied. He came to Naoth and Ramah. Verse 24. We got a couple more to go. And he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Right. So I want to work with that a little bit with you just because, you know, you guys are used to Netflix and HBO and all that stuff. And so you have a very veneer view of what's going on here. At the deeper redemptive level, there's some truth about the nature of God's prophetic authority. And and we want to understand what that is. First of all, Saul is God's enemy because he's the enemy of the people of God. That's a takeaway. That means Saul is not a child of God, even though Saul right now is Speaking prophetically. Saul is not a true worshiper, even though now he has fallen down in front of Samuel. Y'all got that? He's fallen down in front of Samuel. He's not a true worshiper, but he's being compelled to worship now because there's a sovereign greater than him. 
There's a sovereign greater than Saul that is showing Saul that Saul is nothing. Saul can't even control the words that are coming out of his mouth. And now Saul is bowing down to Samuel. Right. So you and I are hearing now New Testament echoes. You ready? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Samuel is, Saul is doing. He's admitting there's a king greater than him. But I want to go on a little bit further because this has to do with understanding something about prophecy. Okay, can I, can I talk about that? All right, so when you and I are dealing with the word of God, the word of God is designed to expose you. When you and I are dealing with the word of God, the word of God is designed to expose you. This is why people don't like biblical truth, because biblical truth is designed to expose you. I'm going to walk us through it because it's important to get like 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 liars put on facades. They put on performances. They hoodwink people. Liars lie. But truth tellers expose. So when you're dealing with truth and truth has its way in your life. You are going to be uncomfortable from time to time because truth is going to expose the flaws in you. Raise your hand if you got what I just stated. You have to because, see, if you don't accept this reality, you will fight with God every time truth comes your way prophetically and shows you that you are in an era somewhere. See what I'm getting at? So all right, just imagine King Saul coming after King David, dressed in all of the, the regalia of his, uh, his gear as a king. And now he has to unrobe himself of all of his royal majesty. He has to drop out of those garbs and he's down to now just his underwear, just in case y'all thought he was completely butt naked. Now he could be, but just for visual optics, I just want y'all to be keep keep in your mind. Okay, he could be butt naked, but I just for visual optics, just just think of him having some drawers on. Okay, some shorts, just right. Because him being stripped down means that the spirit of God is searching him out. Okay. It means the spirit of God is searching him out. I love this. Keep your hand there because I'm going to come back for a minute. We only got a few more minutes, but go with me in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is the chapter of the CEO. And this is why the apostle Paul said that I'd rather that you prophesy than speak with tongues. So I want to get into this to help you with this. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, verse 1, there is Paul's preference laid out there. We're going to walk through a little bit of it and show you the corollary. Look at what it says in verse 1. Follow after charity, absolutely, and desire spiritual things, spiritual gifts, which we're talking about. But rather that you do what? That you prophesy. Right. Now, Paul is going to go, let me explain to you why I would much rather you have the capacity of the heavens opening up, the spirit coming down, invading your life, flowing in and flowing out. Here's what he says in verse two. For the one that speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but unto God. We'll deal with that. For no man understands him. 
So now if you're speaking and no one understands you, cannot benefit anybody. <clears throat> and it's certainly not revelation. <clears throat> Did y'all keep up with me? Because revelation is always understanding. When you and I don't understand something, it's veiled. And veiled things are mysteries. The goal of prophecy is to unpack mysteries. Calypses is our Greek term for veil. Apocalypses is our Greek term for unveiling. So when we properly comprehend the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1 through 22 of the last book, what we have there is the unveiled sovereignty of Christ's rule over everything throughout time into eternity. You guys got that? That was the last book given to the people of God to bring comfort to them so that they never have to ask the question, is Christ on the throne? Did he come home? See, if you read the apocalypse carefully, you know he's on the throne. Even though all the affairs of this present world are as chaotic and crazy and stupid and discombobulating, Christ is still on the throne controlling that. And when the apocalypse is open to you, you have that revelation that is both your comfort and your opportunity to tell the world, guess what? Though the earth be removed and cast into the depths of the sea, I shall not be moved. I have set the Lord always before my face. That's what David said. And I love this. This is why I love David. Because David didn't care about the world falling apart as long as God was on the throne when it was happening. And that was because the heavens were opened up to David too, were they not? The heavens were open to David too, were they not? That's Psalm 110 verse 1, right? I saw the Lord, my Lord speaking unto thee, Lord, right? And so it's important for you and I to know that the idea of prophecy is the idea that God opens the heavens and pours into us revelation of who he is and what he's doing to allow us to tell the world, hey, wait a minute, God's on the throne. All right, so this is what's happening with our friend. Notice what it says over in verse, I want to start at verse 11. Uh, nope, I'm going to start over at verse, yes, I'm going to start over at verse 22 and read through verse 25. Now, and, and this is around the idea of why we would want to actually be objects of prophecy. Here's what Paul says. In the law, verse 21, it is written with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. Yet for all this, they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a what? Tongues are for a what? Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them that what? Now he's getting ready to explain it through. If therefore the whole church comes together, that's like Sunday service, in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there comes in that one that is unlearned or an unbeliever, will not they say you are mad? Will not they say, Abalam? That'll come home in a minute. Abalam. There's a bunch of fools in here because they're rattling off in all of these languages. And nobody understands what they're saying. 
You offend people when you do that. See, and here's how this works. And you, you must always know this. When somebody's trying to control you, they have to lie to you. You must always know the goal of liars in controlling you is to either tell you something that is not true or something that you can't understand. What it will do to you is test you whether or not you have the character enough to know who you are. Can I unpack that just a little bit before we go? Like some people are just by nature gullible. I know there's none of y'all in the room. I know none of y'all in the room are gullible. None of y'all. None of y'all have been sold your own vacuum cleaner when the garage door was left open. The thief came in the garage, cleaned off the vacuum cleaner, came to the front door, knocked on the front door and says, I got a vacuum cleaner to sell you. And you bought it. So I know y'all all smart and savvy. And whenever the huckster comes, you can just expose him right away. I know you're all good. No, you have never, ever been even temporarily deceived. Okay, but every now and then it happens. And God will let it happen to us every now and then to let us know we can be off guard. Because we can become presumptuous and we can become arrogant and we can become hard hearted and we can miss signals when the snake is coming. Or we can be leaning into the spirit of error. I told you there's only two spirits in the world, spirit of truth, spirit of error. If you wake up operating out of the spirit of error, somebody's going to lie to you all day long and you're not going to detect it. Am I making some sense? And if you let the spirit error get a hold of your life too long, when the spirit of truth comes, you're going to call the spirit of truth the spirit of error. And the spirit of error, the spirit of truth. Did that make some sense? Right. Because you aren't making the assessment that maybe I am not prepared for the truth. Maybe I have been leaning too much into stupidity. That's my sermon this Sunday. Stupid. Okay, I'm just giving it up to you up front. Stupid. All right. So just in case you have problem with the word stupid, just watch it online. (laughs) Watch it online because we can really work through what it means to be stupid. Um, And so the reality is. If somebody says something to you for which if you don't go, I'm not really real clear on what you just said. Would you explain yourself? Which means you're protecting your own interest. Which means you're saying that either I am no more going to be gullible or you're just not a person that can be sold the book in Brooklyn Bridge. Right. And so you're going to require of that person to explain themselves. And then you're going to go, you know what? Still not persuaded. Let me think on it. That's called the next gift we're going to deal with. It's called discernment. Did that come home? So all discernment is, is the capacity for you to say no until you figure it out. That's a character issue. Isn't that a character issue? I mean, I mean you don't have to buy a thing just because it's shiny. No, no, man, the thing was shiny, so I just gave him all the money in my pocket. Again, that's our, our study on Sunday. Stupid. Stupid. Okay. So, yeah, here's the point. The goal of the enemy is to lie to you or to make it so difficult for you to understand 
that you actually give up the integrity of having the right to have it explained to you and simply just yield to them. That's what happened three years ago. Nobody was supposed to allow anything to be put into their arm until they could read the paper and on the paper have all of the items in that content and all of the potential hazards. Did did that make some sense? When you pull that paper out of the vial, guess what? It's completely blank. Now, here's the problem. The doctors should have read it first. These are your preachers. No, no, I'm not talking doctors. I'm talking preachers now that love to buy into doctrines and sell them to the people. Y'all keeping up with me? And they're, and they're not even reading the fine print. They're selling it to you because somebody else sold it to them. They're gullible. Now they want you to be gullible. Right. So it's important for you to understand at the end of the day, you don't want to get sick. Now, this carries over into the realm of theology and doctrine and teaching, does it not? Right. So it's really important that you and I have the character of Scripture. First Thessalonians 5, 21. Prove everything. Right. Just just be one of those dudes that just one of those girls that just say, well, look, stop. No, I need all kind of evidence. OK, I want California evidence. I want national evidence. I want international evidence. If there's evidence from other planets, I want evidence from other planets. If Mars has tested it, I want the data from Mars. OK. And I don't care how long it takes, I want the data from Mars because, you know, a thing can be different on Mars than it is here. And I might be a Mars type of human being. I'm just saying. Right. And when you're the kind of person person that gives people those kind of difficulties, they're not going to be quick to try to lie to you. They're just not going to be quick to lie to you because you're on top of your game. Right. So really what I'm getting ready to talk about here is the spirit of prophecy is designed to expose us. Can I finish? All right. Because this is, you know, this is where we are. Um, Going back now to first Corinthians chapter 14. Notice what it says in verse 24. He uses the contrasting conjunction in verse 24a. But right. As opposed to speaking in tongues, babbling and going on and folks are wondering what in the world is going on. Everybody in this house is mad. Right. Um, We'll deal with that. Paul explains that. But look at verse 24. But if all do what? But if all do what? But if all declare, if all explain, if all expound, if all encourage, if all instruct, if all edifies, if all builds up, if all is able to take it apart and put it back together again. Am I making some sense? Because prophesying is being able to explain God's word as well as declare God's word. That's what Peter did in Acts 2. They spoke in tongues. Nobody was saved until Peter came along and said, this is that and began to unpack what they were doing in light of the prophecy of Joel. Right. And then he began to preach the gospel. And that's when men and women said, what must we do to be saved? They weren't saved because they saw the phenomena of babbling. They were saved because that Bible was explained in light of the scripture, which is prophesying. It was set forth clearly and the spirit of God used it to do what we're about to do now. Expose that whole group. From the inside out. All right. So now watch what it says. Notice what it said. But if all prophesy and there come in one that believes not and is unlearned. 
he is convinced of all. See that construction? That's not easy. You know, it's old, it's old Saxon English. What that literally means is he's fully persuaded of everything that prophecy has said to him about him. That's what that means. He's totally convinced. <clears throat> it's what happens when people come in here and hear the gospel unpacked and they go from sweating to crying to thanking God because the preaching breaks them down. It shreds them. It shows them that they are a sinner. It destroys their capacity to think that they can do anything to merit favor with God. And then when Jesus is exalted, they see Jesus as altogether lovely and wonderful and the only grounds upon which they can have favor with God. And they're happy to know that God has given his only begotten son so that if they trust him, they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What a prophecy. See what I'm getting at? Right. So watch this. Notice what it says. He's convinced of all. He is completely judged of all. Both of those words are exactly what we saw in John chapter 16, verse eight. Put it, pull it back up again. This is the work of the spirit of God. By the way, you can't convince anybody of anything. Now you can judge people, but you can't convince them. God has to do that. And so when the spirit of prophecy is working, he is the one that actually opens their heart. Did that make some sense? You and I can share the word, but we can't open the heart. Only God can open the heart and make the heart sensible to the sovereign God speaking to that heart in the private place of their soul. Watch it. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse nine. Notice what it says of sin, because they do not believe on me. When a person comes in unbelieving, they are still in a state of what? Sinning, right? The wages of sin is death. That's what we tell men and women. You need Jesus because you are a what by nature, right? But see, we can say that until we're blue in the face. And for a black man, that's hard, but we can get there. Um, but a person's not going to believe it until the spirit of God helps them, right? The spirit of God has to help you understand you, you, you're not perfect. You're just not perfect. You need help. And God will take his, he'll take your whole life. God will take your whole life. Like God is never in a hurry. He'll walk with you all the way to the grave. And right before you breathe your last breath, he said, okay, so now what? All right now, all right now, you know, I didn't kept you and watched over you and I didn't protected you. I didn't let you sit under my gospel until you're 995 years old. So now what? Like your legs ain't working anymore. Your arms are not working anymore. All your vital organs are shutting down. Read Ecclesiastes 12. Y'all know the Ecclesiastes 12, right? You're starting to go blind. You're starting to go deaf, right? You're starting to be agitated and cantankerous. Your knees hurt. Your ankles hurt, right? Everything hurts. Things are loud and things are dull. And you ready to check out. Are you ready to cross the line into glory? This is what you need to be praying for, ladies and gentlemen, about our loved ones. Because their slow, plain descent back to the tarmac of death can be one where God is negotiating with them from so many years of them hearing the word of the living God. And I, I can tell you, as I put men and women to rest, when a man or a woman reaches a point where they are about to descend into death, they aren't hearing from anybody but God. 
And so the goal is to put the word in them before they get to that point where that plane starts to descend. So you can have hope that God is negotiating with them. Am I making some sense? And then a lot of times we'll have the opportunity. I know it because me and Brother E, who will be doing his, his father's memorial next Saturday, E will tell you for himself, he labored with his daddy up to just recently. And his daddy bowed the knee and left for glory. He'll tell you. He'll tell you. He'll tell you. That's why we do it. That's what the thief on the cross is all about. He's able to save to the uttermost. So you and I preach it and teach it and expound it and explain it and sing it all the kind of ways we do so that men and women can but hear it. But we can't make anybody believe it. All right. Going back to our text, 1 Corinthians 14. I want to explain this through. I think we're almost there. Notice what he says in verse 25 and 26. 25. And thus are the what? Secrets of his heart what? Made manifest. And here it is. And so doing what? Falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a true. See it? This is what Saul is doing. This is what his men are doing. Because the spirit of God is giving them a foreshadow of the fact that God is sovereign. They will never be able to get away with being Lilliputian kings on the earth and persecuting God's people. Makes sense, doesn't it? Also, you know what else makes sense? We're going to shut it down right here. So I need some runners for a little Q&A. Makes sense right here. Think about this. I want you to think about it from, from, from here on out. And you, can, and you can text me, too, if you want to, particularly those that, that wrestle with me, because, you know, I send you guys a lot of material because I just really want you to be able to see what's going on. I want to know, I want to know the next time you, um, you hear a Balaam prophesy. I want to I know the next time you hear some of our wicked rulers telling the truth because God forced them to. Did y'all get that? Right. So here's what I'm trying to help you do. Here's what I'm trying to help you do. I'm trying to help you overcome the, um, you know, um, I'm trying to remember his name now. It'll it'll come back in a moment. What we're doing in our studies and analysis is really seeing how God is managing the affairs of men and exposing us to the machinations and strategies and schemes. That's what we're doing. But we're doing more than that. We're listening for the movement of the spirit of God, controlling, constraining, sometimes exposing, sometimes using even unsaved people to convey truth claims that affirm reality around God. Are y'all keeping up with me? They don't need to be saved for us to know that God is sovereign. I already taught you that seven months ago. Gideon in a dream had already heard the enemy in the tent speaking of their fear of God so that often the unsaved are going to say things that are truthful because God's going to make them say things that are truthful. Has nothing to do with whether they're saved or not. You and I are not looking for saved people because half the time we don't even know if people are saved. So all this idea about Christians and, uh, you know, he's a believer. Well, on the last day, that's when the curtains are going to be pulled back and everybody's going to be exposed on that day. But right now, what you and I are listening for are propositional truth claims. It doesn't matter where they come from because God is in control of it all. 
Am I making some sense? Right. So overcome these fictitious categories I've already told you about. Don't get trapped by the right and trapped by the left. Some days the right is lying as if they are the devil incarnate. I'm going to say it again. Sometimes the right is lying as if they are the devil incarnate. And sometimes the left is telling truth that they don't even know. And your job is to rise above both of them and not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine trapped by these false bifurcations. Y'all got what I just stated? And it takes a lot of integrity to be able to stay in the equilibrium of rising above these two opposing narratives. It takes a lot of integrity to say, no, I'm not on your side or your side. I'm on the Lord's side. It takes a lot of integrity to do that. Because once you're on the Lord's side, then you're actually ready to be in opposition to everybody. All right. So we're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes asking the question. And I, I, you guys can ask any question, but I'd like to hear just a few ideas around. What 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 does that look like? What does it look like to be an environment that's able to speak in a constant flow of prophetic reality as, as a person, as a, as a couple, as a family? What would that look like? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Just one, one or two. Who, who got the mics? I, I saw the mics all get taken. Who got mics? Raise your hand. I, I, just, want, I just want to know. Okay, I'll start with AJ. We got one up front. We got, so raise your hand if you guys want to take a shot at it, unless this class is completely, this particular question completely evades you. Go ahead on, AJ. Can I, can I ask a question after I answer yes. that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it looks like um, kind of a model of the, uh, the church, right, where Christ would be the head, and that would, like, represent the husband, and the husband would be like a covering for the wife um, and that the wife would be the bride of Christ. And so um, more practically, it would mean that we would be viewed um, in that way. We would probably affect people um, because they would see us. And maybe if they're not believers, they would wonder, you know, why are we so peaceful in chaotic times or, you know, like, uh, in, in our situation, why do we, you know, take our kids out of a school system? And um, then we would get the opportunity to explain our position. Um, we would essentially be like a light move from place to place where people would wonder why certain things were happening or not happening in our life. And we would um, most likely hopefully be used by God to speak prophetically to them to bring light to that situation. That sounds good. Did that make some sense to you guys? Really good. I I like the fact that he used the metaphor of a light because prophecy is about light. I like the idea that that he used, and I'm just going to massage this a little bit and go on, but this is really important to me because the enemy has had his way in our homes for so many decades that the model of the Spirit of God um, having like copious and broad influence in the totality of the family is very little modeled today. Did that make some sense? 
Like, if you visualize a family, let's say a husband, wife with two or three kids, they can be young kids, teenagers, or, or burgeoning adults, and you looked at their life over the course of, let's say, 10 or 15 years, you don't really get outstanding models of the Spirit of God dominating that atmosphere. You'll, you'll see believers, but you generally will just see believers struggling. You'll see believers hit and miss. You'll see believers struggling with the Spirit of God actually being pervasively present in the home at the prophetic level. Did that make some sense? Now, I'm just putting it out there because what that means is something stopped the flow. Something stopped the flow in the home. Raise your hand if you're keeping up with me, because I know it's 9, 830 and you want to go to sleep. Something stopped the flow. Would you agree with that? Is it possible that a well-intentioned Christian family can find themselves in levels of adversity that stops the flow so that the home is not pervasive with the joy of the Lord, um, uh, optimistic uh, prophetic expression, because faith is optimism, is it not? Hopefulness, uh, the ability to encourage, to recall the promises of God in the times of trouble, et cetera, et cetera, and to, and to do it mutually. Like when the husband is down, the wife is building him up. When the wife is down, the husband's building her up. Or when the kids are down, the parents are building them up, so forth and so on. I didn't want to go through all this. I was hoping you guys understood the visual of what I'm talking about, because to me, that's a river flowing through a whole family that can impact generations if the seed of those kids are able to be nurtured in the soil of prophetic reality all the way up into adulthood where they have a robust vision of the glories of Christ and a comprehensive understanding of the word of God because we taught them from their youth to trust the true and the living God. Did that make some sense? Right. So like to me, that really is a non-negotiable if you're going to actually bring eternity bound souls into this world. That, that your obligation is to take God's child because it's really God's child. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. Let me help some of y'all just in case you don't know. Them is not yours kids. Them is not yours kids. Okay, they're they're on loan from God. You got about actually only got about 13 years from them. The the subsequent three to four, they're just smiling at you, but they already got their plans made up. They can't just wait. They can't wait to pull out. They're smiling, but they're just waiting for their green card because they just as soon as they can, they pull it on. I love you, mama, but I'm out. Oh, am I telling the truth? They're out. And so we only got about 13 years to kind of help them understand the North Star of reality around how to walk through this crazy world, looking to Christ and really understanding the sufficiency of Scripture. So I'm glad to hear that. Who else had an observation? Who? who yeah, let's let's keep it going. If you got to. All right. I'm going to start with my sister, then you and then you can go. To, let me I'll see. Go, what I'll you go mean. fast. Um, so I feel like like how I'm living right now, I'm really making my family, or we're making an effort in living in a prophetic home. And what that looks like is, instead of uh, even using words to tear each other down to get a message, Mm -hmm. um, 
we're building up. That goes with my husband, how we talk to each other. Um, I mean, we had a bad slip today, but that was another thing. But anyway. That's all, all part of the course. Yeah, so um, then even with my son, like if he's not dating who I think he should be dating, I just leave it. Now I leave it in, in God's hands, and I just know that he's sovereign. And that's what Steve and I were talking about. Because we know that God has it. I mean, there's nothing to fear. And it just takes a lot of pressure off a mother and a wife. And it's just, it's, there's a lot of joy. There's, there's so much joy because there was so much strife in our home before. And, you know, we have generational of just, like, talking bad about each other and, you know, form alliances. Because when you have ten kids, you're always forming alliances. The Hatfields and the McCoys under the same roof. Right. And so now we just, like, we love each other, and um, instead of just, like, gossiping about each other, we say, you know, isn't that beautiful, or let's pray for them, you know, or or things. It's just a really a trippy, different way of doing life instead of always being angry or just having continual strife. And it is wonderful when, you know, as a husband and wife, you can talk like I was. We had this conversation about again. Steve says, "Why does God let do stuff?" And I said, "Because He restrains the evil." And so that's a beautiful thing too, is that you know that God's restraining the evil, and whatever He does, He works to make you, you know, stronger and better, and be a warrior for Him. Mm-hmm. Did so that sound? Did that, did that sound okay, you guys? Good, very good. Particularly for a new believer in the faith. Um, obviously, with when I'm talking about um, the home actually being pervasively uh, and largely and prominently dominated by the spirit of prophecy, I'm talking a trend. I'm talking a trend. <clears throat> and I'll talk a little bit more about that before I close. You want a trend in your home because the trend is a metaphor of the rivers coming down from the mountains and flowing into the rivers and into the creeks. That's what the river does. So you want a trend of truth from heaven to earth. Did that make some sense? Because when you have a trend, you can put up with momentary lapses because the momentum is a trend. And this is where the believer really takes on some joy when you come to discover, okay, we're moving in a trend, in a direction of flow that you know is right versus um, not having that confidence. So that's great. So, um, James will go with you and then, and then you can go after him and then I'll uh, go with, with, my, with my brother uh, behind you, James. Go ahead on. Let's get at it before we get out. You know, when I think back as a child, it seemed like something I experienced even, even then. I, I always look at it as the Deuteronomy 6 uh, type of life where uh, I was raised up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, not just... <clears throat> As I was being raised, but, you know, um, everyone around me. And it was like a a magnet. There was a a lot of love, a lot of peace, a lot of forgiveness, uh, you know, a lot of laughter. Because that's where, you know, the medicine came in, the healing. And it would be duplicating itself. It would be spreading because we were, everybody was focused on pleasing God. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, praising God, loving him with all we have, you mm-hmm. know, and loving our neighbor as, you know, a, a, as ourselves. And that was the goal. That would look like, you know, 
fathers getting up, going to work, mothers being able to stay at home with the children playing, you know, at the streets, uh, encompassing the grandparents, you know, with the children sitting at the grandparents' feet, overseeing everything, you know, like uh, a type of shadow, uh, I mean, of heaven, I mean, of heaven, like you will, just, you know, you know, just glorious, because what we're constantly doing is, you know, we wake it up in the morning, we're, we're doing what God said, we're repeating his word. When we're going by the way, we're talking about it. I mean, we never leave his presence. David said, I bless the Lord at all times. His praise should continually be in my mouth. You know, that would be the type of life we would do, we, we would experience. And it wouldn't be without trouble because there's always an occasional bump in the road, but we would, over, we, we would be able to overcome it because you don't uh, be overcome with evil, you overcome evil with good. You know, and so that's what our, our practice would be. And as we display that, then I believe others would be drawn to us because we would be going out sharing that with everyone we know. We would be taking the gospel out. And, and I could, you know, I, I, mean, I could just vision that because I don't remember upbringing that had a whole lot of turmoil. Now, of course, adults were real good at maybe covering it up, but I know it was out there. But, but even that is part of a flow. Flow. Okay. Uh, no, I appreciate that, James. No, that's, even, that was it. Yeah, no, even that's part of a flow. Uh, a prophetic flow, presence of the Spirit of God working in our life um, does not mean that we don't have our hiccups, don't, does not mean that we don't have our troubles, but our troubles is, are dealt with with those kind of trends, right? That's how you deal with trouble, by a trend of priority that does not um, default into bad carnal uh, behavior that cuts off the blessing. So what you are constantly doing is making sure that the trend of the flow addresses these these evil moments, these toxic moments. Sometimes it's to eradicate it. I'll get back to the flow for my last point. And sometimes it's simply to mitigate that evil's capacity to wreak more havoc in the home. Did that make some sense? Sometimes all you're doing is mitigating. That's all you're doing. Let my sister Cindy and then Brother Carlos. Yeah, so it's kind of what I was feeling with the flow. It's, um, and especially in what we learned tonight, there's also the protection or the covering of um, God with us. Mm -hmm. And even through adversity, let's use the river, you're going to hit a rock, you're going to get, there's snakes, there's twigs. But the the flow is um, headed towards eternity because ultimately that's where, we, where we're going. Yeah. And the, I guess the, the, um, the beauty is, is that when the family is in the flow together and they're dodging, you know, these twigs and these rocks, I guess the people that see this family in unity moving towards eternity, it is um, a way that, like you were saying, ultimately God um, can, you know, um, highlight the blessing of being covered by God. Very much so. It becomes an opportunity to um, call men and women from the sidelines into the river flow, right? Because humanity is on the sideline. So when God calls you, he calls you into that trajectory, that trend, and that flow. You are now moving. You are a Hebrew. You are now moving. You are now taking your journey. You are going somewhere. That shows up in your mindset. That shows up in the way you talk. You are not stuck. A child of God is not stuck. A child of God is not stuck. You may have an assignment and an assignment might look like stuck, but an assignment 
and, and the child of God's fundamental characteristic are two different things. I am on my way to glory. So I am pressing toward the mark, right? So we use that river flow. We are recognizing that there's a power greater than me moving me in a direction, like our sister said, towards glory. And I'm simply learning how to navigate that flow while God is actually, you know, overseeing providentially my life. And that does become for an opportunity, become for people an opportunity, get into the river right along with us because we're moving towards glory, right? Now, a lot of people are stuck on the sideline and they have no idea how to get unstuck. And it's very important. The conversation that we're having is very, very important. Carlos? Oh, just a few Bible verses were coming to mind um, in regards to the flow. I was thinking about the upper room discourse, you know, abiding in, in Christ and him teaching us how to prioritize love in the midst of persecution or trials. Um, I was also thinking about how he teaches us how to love one another and also how to deal with the world that hates us. Um, some of the texts that I was thinking of was John 15, out of verses 26 and 27. Sure. He reminds us that, um, that we also are going to bear witness and the reason is because we actually um, are with him. We, we, we know him. We have bore his testimony. And, uh, and we actually have the spirit of God in us. Um, an illustration of that, I think, that it came to mind that was good was Acts chapter 4. And that's going to be uh, verses 32 and 33. And I'll just read it. It says, the, uh, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and abundant in grace was upon them all. That's, that account right there is the best the church has ever been up to now. The church has never been better than that account. That account that Carlos is making mention of the fourth chapter of Acts, before we get to the fifth chapter, where those two crazy people, Ananias and Sapphira, think they can lie to God about the money, which is where our churches are today. You know, money-centered, prosperity-centered, materialistically-centered. Unfortunately, particularly in America, we sell the world a bad form of Christianity because we think it's about materialism. But in Acts chapter 4, as it closes out, what it demonstrated was the fullness of the Spirit to release people from a notion of believing that they are valuable because of what they possess and that they had a default mechanism of saying, mine is yours and yours is mine. Whatever we got to do to make it through this world, we will. We'll use all of our resources to do whatever we need to do to break down opposition, to overcome trials and move forward. Did that make some sense? Right. Because we're not there anymore. And again, materialism in America has destroyed that for us. And, and so we have to deal with those challenges going forward. Uh, it's really, uh, really important. Uh, and I should leave it alone. But what you should know is that the itemization, the individuation, the isolation is what destroys the capacity often for that flow to have its place in our community. Remember, I'm talking about community characteristics. We can be so hyper self-sufficient, so hyper autonomous that we are actually not experiencing the fullness of that lateral 
uh, participation in the body project as we ought to. Every local church is really an opportunity for that, at least in pockets, not if not at large. But that will also be contingent upon whether families learn how to understand that, you know, we're in this battle together. Let's figure out how to negotiate this particular hurdle, this particular rock in the middle of the stream or whatever that case may be. Because to the degree the, the, the prophetic flow is operating in our lives, to that degree, other, other people will become confident to want to actually imitate that. This is actually the way that it goes. This is very good, very good. Who has the mic? Um, Shana, okay, we'll get you, JR. Go on, sis. Thank you for that, Carlos. Good evening. Hey, sis. Um, so I'm, this is piggybacking on a question or statement I had a couple of weeks ago about um, speaking to people in gentleness um, and kindness. Um, I've been having this um, back and forth with in what I would consider an elder of my family, um, someone that I respect, someone that's a believer, someone that had a, has had a great influence on my life. But for the past three years, we've had this back and forth where it can get testy. Um, at first, I thought it was just politics, but then I'm thinking... I thought about it. I said, no, it's, it's actually two things. It usually surrounds children because we're usually debating um, or I'm bringing up abortion and the LGBTQ affecting the kids. And it's also, or abuse of children, and it's also the use of the word of God to justify lining up the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And it came to a head this week and we got into this verbal battle, and the person said, Shauna, don't talk to me like that. And I said, okay. And the next day I called, and I said, I wasn't trying to offend you. That wasn't my intent. But I'm passionate about my God, and I'm passionate about children and them being hurt. And you're, you're lining yourself up with the devil in the name of politics because you don't like Trump or you don't like Republicans. And I, that's not right. And what she told me was, well, I am the same, but I'm trying to do my civic duty. And I, and I said, Christ trumps that. And what she ended up on was, you need to be more gentle. You need to, to tone it down. And this is the struggle that I'm having. I don't know if she's right or wrong in that regard because I know my personality. And I do know that I can come across strong and offensive. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's me or if the other person is just being ultra sensitive. And these are the struggles that I'm having that keep coming up with me where I'm 
talking about the word, I'm passionate about the word with believers that I would think we would be in agreement and we're not. Why would you think that? Because I would, I, I, I wrongly assume that they're mature because their tenor of this person, the tenor of their life, other than this issue, has given me no reason not to think they are. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm struggling with my tone, maybe. Or maybe I should continue to, I don't know. That's the struggle. That's the question. Okay, that's the question. Okay. <laughs> You're just telling the story. We're going to keep moving. Um, obviously, it's not necessarily an either or. I've talked, you know the, you know the rules. It could be a both and. And so what you do is you go, Lord, is that true? Because you know, Philippians chapter three makes it clear. And if we be otherwise thus minded, the Lord will show you. So you do know how to say, Lord, help me with that. If that's true, help me with that. But it can be both and. What I mean by that is I'm sitting here thinking I could have asked her or him, if it was me, uh, can we parse this topic and talk about talk about tone and impression as well as content of the subject matter. Because I want to know if just in terms of the subject matter, did you understand what I was saying about how we can be hypocritical as Christians to say that we're believers who hold to a biblical worldview, but on our political platform, we are just as diametrically opposed to biblical truth as as anyone could be, and that would be constituted hypocrisy. So what I'm doing right there is splitting the screen, dealing with the propositions in their objective form, and, and maybe we can get back and talk about tone and expression. Does that make some sense? Right, we, could, we can talk about that. And in my relationship with her or him, I may have to work on that. And that me working on that does not preclude that they could have a problem. Of course they can have a problem. And I could too. So it's not an either or. So it, it depends on how, you know, you want to negotiate the relationship with that person going forward. Do you want to sacrifice the clarity of propositional truth, which is an essential component of the prophetic word, as you know, but it's not, uh, it's not an absolute component. The prophetic word will also call for grace at the level of the characteristics of the spirit. Now, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, goodness, temperance, faith, long suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Nine qualities there too. So I want to make sure that I am handling both of those dials best I can. I don't want to reduce the dial of propositional truth just to come off off feeling like I care, sounding like I care, because otherwise I'm now trying to manipulate you around a disposition that you favor and the topic now is getting lost because I'm, I'm being dominated by the aesthetics of how we interact, right? And, and that can be a tactic. There's no doubt about that. So the goal will be to operate in the tandem of the objective propositional truth for which you and I are, are disagreeing because we're disagreeing on propositional truth claims. We're not disagreeing about the appropriateness of tone and respect. If she's an elder, 10 years older, or 15 years older, or 20 years older, of course you have to make sure you're not coming across as if you are rebuking an elder. That would be totally wrong. Did that make some sense? 
So you definitely want to make sure that you don't feel as if you don't have to ever check your passion and zeal. We have to do that with our kids. You know that they'll they'll get knowledgeable. My kids will come home with degrees and boy, they'll pull their their secular sword out and be ready to go to war with dad. And then I got to pull out my theological sword and we're fighting back and forth in the living room, you know, theology and secularism. And then I have to actually do, you know, some of my fencing stuff that I learned in college and knock that sword out of their hand and say, now, don't pick it up until you say I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, And of course, you know, the river might be flowing. I don't know. I I did talk about uh, from grace to storms, because sometimes the anointing has to be a storm. It, It really does. So Jesus spoke with grace. But John the Baptist was a storm. He had to be. Right. I was talking about this. What do storms do when they come through? They knock off all of the dead brush. They they remove everything dead, everything dying, everything brown. It just washes it away. And the air is fresh. The air is clean. And every living thing is happy for that storm to have come through because now it gets to regenerate. Does that make some sense? So sometimes that's going to happen in the home. Sometimes that's going to happen in relationships. And the positive optimism out of that is if we are rooted. If we're rooted, we're good. If we're rooted when we go through a storm, we're good because we're going to get through it and we're going to be better better for it, if that makes sense. So I'm not taking you out of that assignment. I'm just telling you, you want to be able to make sure you have the capacity to pivot on those two dials because you, you want to sustain the relationship with that person. And what will happen over time, Jashana, is you will, de- you will be able to determine whether that person is just operating out of a consistent cognitive dissonance. Because unfortunately, we have a lot, of, a lot of believers that do. A lot of believers are jacked up politically. I can just tell you that now. They are totally jacked up. They, they've learned how to be a political Christian, and they're not a Bible Christian. And it's really hard to get them to dislodge themselves from trusting in politics and majority voices and yielding to to the truth of God's word. This is why I'm teaching you guys about the evils of Zionism right now, helping you make the categorical distinction between Zionism and true Judaism. You guys are picking up on that. And it's important to do because if you don't, the faulty bifurcation that if you're against Zionism, you're against Judaism or against the Jews and nothing could be further from the truth. You guys know that, right? All right, so very important. All right, one one more. Who has the mic? Uh, JR. Uh, I was going to say what it made me think about was a couple points that had been mentioned was in the household it it's not a perfect picture but it's you could you could maybe for lack of better words uh use uh mindset you know so kind of flowing from the top down when you talk about flow mm-hmm. even though um it's a flawed household on this horizontal when those trials and certain assignments and things come, we can see tokens yes. at times. Yes. And that no doubt. is something that um, I thought about. So I thought about in, um, around, I think it's in Romans 15, where Paul talks about being of 
one mind yes. um, to glorify God. Yes. So even with whether it's older children or younger children, you know, husband, wife, etc., that should be the flow. And then, you know, in time, uh, if God continues to bless it, that will grow and, and flourish. I agree. I, I totally agree. I appreciate that. And, and that is in Romans chapter 15, maybe around verse 16 or so. And now the God of all hope fill you with joy through believing and gracing you with the ability to admonish one another so that we can be of one mind and of one joy. And, and of course, for JR, just uh, of course, that's wanting heaven to stay open and, and, and the water of truth to constantly pour into our communities. That, that's, so earlier, like the germane thing that I was putting out there that I think I want us always to keep in mind, whether it's individual or couples, make sure that you are able to detect when there's something that's going to cut that flow off. That's what you want to be able to pick up on. What might hinder the flow? Does that make sense? So at that point, that's about being sensitive to, to God in your life. And you, you and I know that, right? We can have what's what. So we'll have a form. And that's right. A structure, a pattern of behavior. We, we all have that. And God's good. Patterns are important. We're here Tuesday. We're here Friday. We're here Sunday. We have a form. It's called formation, information, transformation. Did I tell you that? Formation, information, transformation. You, God does not work outside of form. He doesn't work in chaos. So in a home, we're going to have a form, a pattern of mindset that when it's operating consistently with mama and daddy, then it's going to have its way in the kid's life until the kids rise up and throw those shackles off. But even by the time that happens, the form, because of repetitiveness, has anchored in them patterns that they can't get away with even when they break the form. Does that make some sense? That becomes the hope of the believer of towing them back in once they get out there in that crazy world and discover that the crazy world doesn't have a foundation under them and they collapse back. And we've seen that happen so, so many times. You, you got to believe God for that train them up right when they're old, that truth will stay with them and begin to tow them back in because they will ultimately, you and I are hard-headed sinners and we will ride God to our last breath. I mean, that's just what we, that's what we, it's true. It's true. And this is why a true believer has to be patient with rebel sinners. You have to be patient with rebel loved ones. You have to know that in their strength, they will use, sinners will use their strength against God. You know, and so what we do is we ride it out. That's one strategy we do with our kids. When your kids get older and bigger, I already told you, mama, once your kid 13 to 14, you ain't going to win that battle. You can go to the gym and you can learn boxing and martial arts, all that. The gorilla going to win. And, and, you know, you can argue with your daughter when she's 13 or 14. Eventually, you're going to lose that battle, too, because will, the will, the volition, that, that bent in all of us. You know, our kids are not going to let you win. <laughs> right? A movie is playing now, right? A movie is playing. And, and now, again, you know, no, settle down. Let them run. Let them go. You just wait for them. To, that's the prodigal son. This is a prodigal son. All right. Did we, are we done so I can close in prayer? Who, has a, who, who had the mic? Are we set? Huh? Okay, good. Um, 
All right, you guys stand with me for prayer. I think that's it. So, Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. It's time now as we go out. Just protect everybody as we make our way um, home and then prepare us to gather again uh, on Sunday. May the preparation of our hearts and the words of our mouth be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, um, to build us up and make us better people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.